Well, that's the gospel. We have just sung about the amazing love of a God, Heavenly Father, who would send His Son. Hey, that's an interesting um, little intro. Thanks, Dave. That's a, I want that transition every week. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us amazing love, amazing joy, amazing fellowship. And when the searchlight, the powerful, intense light of God's glory is manifest in our presence, when we gather together and we lift up the name of the Lord and bring honor and glory to Him, the the intensity of of His righteousness and glory against our sinfulness can only lead us to the conclusion that Isaiah had in the prophet who said, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The one major departure that we take from our culture, in terms of a cultural value or a cultural belief, has to do with the whole reality of man. Basically, our culture has the impression that man is basically good. The scriptures categorically refute that reality, or that unreality. The scriptures declare to us that man is not basically good. And for God's people, we know this. When we, when we are in the intense presence of God, and his glory is before us, it shines upon the dark recesses of our lives and reveals in our own hearts our sinfulness and our wickedness. In fact, um, in both the New Testament and Old Testament, it says that there is no one who does good. There is no one righteous. And Jesus said there is only one who is good. In um, an article by Edward Carnell, Christian Commitment, called Christian Commitment, he makes this statement, God never urges himself to be good because he is good. That is, his nature is always irresistibly toward righteousness. God is never torn by evil motives. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he does not need to be reminded about the duty of his deity. No one needs to say, now today, God, mind your manners. Do what's right. Avoid evil. Remember the Ten Commandments. When a person is good from root to branch, he does not need to be told to be good. His goodness grows like fruit on a tree. But this is not so of us. In our own strength, we are perpetually plagued by our sinful nature. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This means that Galatians chapter 5, as Piper notes, along with the whole New Testament, stands as a perpetual reminder of our moral depravity. So it is critical, and I have been telling you this, and urge it upon you again this morning, it is absolutely critical to us, moment by moment, that we trust in the fullness and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we rely on the control of the Spirit in our lives. We can't take a momentary vacation from the Holy Spirit having full control of our lives. 
lest our sinful nature reach up and grab hold of us and, and take charge of our lives. So let me ask you the question this morning, what's in charge of your way of life? And I mean right now, right this second. Is it your sinful nature or the Holy Spirit? We have been talking over the last couple of weeks about fighting for our freedom by faith. And if, if we do not do that, we will surely live the fleshly life. I had anticipated moving quickly forward beyond the next section that we're talking about this morning, that we're going to talk about this morning. I had anticipated being long out of Galatians chapter 5 by now, but God has just focused me on this place, and I can't get past two or three verses a week because God just won't release me to move forward beyond that. Some of it, I'm thinking, oh, they, they know this stuff. I can just brush over it, and God says, no, it's got to stay here. And so this morning... I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to focus on a, on a section that's really hard teaching. It's, it's a, a section that um, is really a mirror to our hearts. And um, the simple truth is, where there is a lot of fleshly living, there will be much discord and lots of relational trauma and ultimately death. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is much richness in relationships and life. So I want to look this morning at what it is like when the flesh takes over. Would you look at it with me in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19, 20, and 21? When the flesh takes over. Galatians 5, 19. The acts of the sinful nature, or better translated, the works of the sinful nature, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Our Father, we want to pause right now and thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the amazing work that you have done in salvation to free us from sin and to free us from ourselves and to free us from the dominion of darkness and the power of Satan over us. But Father, we recognize that lurking in the already defeated recesses of our lives is our sinful nature that flails around and wants to to reach out and attack us and gain control and gain reign over our hearts all over again, Father. And, And Lord, our desire is that this would not happen. Our desire is that Christ would reign, Christ alone would reign, that our lives would glorify you and honor you. But our Father... You are, you are putting a mirror to our hearts this morning. You have, are insisting that we, we pause and take a close look here and, and see if there be any wicked ways in us, Lord. And so I ask that the powerful working of the Spirit of God, a fresh downpour of the Spirit of God would come upon us this morning, Lord, and that you would not release us from this place until we turn our lives over to you in fullness and we repent and reject the, reject the things that are dragging us into the, 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 the workings of our sinful nature, but rather, Lord, that we turn to you in fullness and freshness today. Seasons of salvation are upon us, Lord. May we be a consecrated people, a sanctified people, Lord. May we know what it is to benefit from the freedoms that we have in Christ through salvation. 
Oh God, I pray that your power would meet our need today, for I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, when flesh takes over, there are relational sins that are sexual and social, there are religious sins, there are substance abuse sins. Whenever flesh takes over, the works of flesh follow. And uh, the works of flesh, as we learned last week, are always at war against all the Spirit wants to produce in our lives. And what he certainly wants to produce is love. And that, that is one of the great casualties of this, uh, this giving ourselves over to our sinful nature. Flesh destroys love. Love for God and love for each other. But when God is working powerfully in you, God in you simply does not result in relational conflict. That's the product of flesh. Now, we have to base our understanding of this text on the idea that the Apostle Paul was really seeing the things that he's writing about in the local congregation. When we read a listing like this, we look at first, at first gloss, we say, oh, that, that's talking about people outside of the church. That's talking about unredeemed. Well, yeah, it sure looks unredeemed. Those are certainly the characteristics and the nature of the unredeemed. But the Apostle Paul is looking at a church. He's gazing at the church in Galatia, a fresh church, brand new in the Lord. And... Um, as, as such, we realize when we look at this text that, that a local congregation has several different kinds of people, which often leads the uh, outsiders to faith to come to the conclusion that church is full of hypocrites. Who of us in, in this gathering, in this room, has not encountered someone who has made this statement I don't go to church, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with religion, Christianity or religion, because the church is full of hypocrites. I'm pretty convinced that there isn't a person in here who hasn't heard someone level that charge against the church. Because they have seen in our lives these things. Now in the church there are Outsiders wouldn't know this. In the congregation, in any local congregation, there are about five different kinds of people from my perspective. There, there are lost people who are curious about the things of God or dragged along against their will. There are people trying to copy Christianity out of their own strength, but who have never had a life-transforming um, conversion by the living Christ. There are people who are what we call loose people who are using their so-called eternal salvation to give themselves permission to do anything they want. There are reckless people in the church who are thinking they can practice their walk with God without the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives daily, momentarily, every second. And then there are people walking in the Spirit. And God's great desire for each one of you is that you would be the last category. People full of the Spirit of God. Now, out of this, the Apostle Paul really identifies only two different kinds of people. And that's true. Although I gave you five different varieties, there are only really two kinds of people. And he makes a 
contrast here between people who are functioning according to the works of the sinful nature and people who are displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Today, as I said, the Spirit of God would not permit me to go past the works of the sinful nature. And I'm going to explain that to you why I think the Lord has that in mind in a few moments. But Paul talks about two different categories here. And by the way, that those who manifest the works of the flesh would include all people outside of Jesus. The people who have never come to a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ live every day of their lives according to the works of their sinful nature, their fallen nature. They're the unredeemed humanity. And then there are people who are displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Those are God's people who are living in the fullness of God's Spirit. And then there are so-called believers who are living according to the works of the flesh more than the fullness of the Spirit. But because the Apostle Paul here is talking about church... I want to sort of laser in on the idea that what God really wants to talk to us about this morning is people who claim to know Jesus Christ but are living day after day manifesting the works of the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit. The reason that I think the living God has not permitted me to go further than this today is because it seems to me that we're talking about a spiritual health diagnostic in this section. Those who are spiritually healthy and those who are spiritually unhealthy. And we have a tendency as human beings to minimize the truth in our lives, as especially where it comes to health concerns. We want to pretend that we're healthy, for the most part. Most of us live in a cer- with a certain amount of denial about our, our health. And that's certainly physically deadly. But there's something worse than being in denial about health and physical health. And that's being in denial about our spiritual health. Because our spiritual health is something that we need for all of eternity. And because we have this sense of denial, it occurred to me that there's a classic illustration in the Bible about this. With respect to David, King David. Who you recall committed the heinous of sins by stealing another man's wife. Committing adultery with her trying to cover it up, all kinds of lies and deceitfulness, and then ultimately ordering the murder of the husband so that his, his wickedness could allegedly be hidden from the people. And he went on with his life after doing that until God put it in the mind of the prophet Nathan that all was not well in the kingdom, all was not well in the king's heart. And so Nathan went to David And he presented him with a, for instance, an illustration. King David, what would you do if there was a man who did this and this and this? 
He used an illustration with sheep, but the uh, illustration was pretty obvious. The man had stolen another man's ewe and, and uh, had taken it from him and was harsh and cold and, and had, had committed all of this wickedness. And David, of course, said, that man needs to die. That man needs to be horribly punished. And it wasn't until Nathan the prophet turned his bony finger and pointed at King David and said, you are the man that David finally owned up to his spiritual unhealth. And I really believe that this is a New Testament church example of that kind of probing by God into our hearts. To say, don't quickly race by this list because you might be the man who's walking in the flesh. You might be the woman who's walking in the flesh or a young person who's walking in the flesh. And what's the urgency of all of this? It says at the very end of verse 21, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is about eternal damnation. This is something that we must take with great urgency Here's what flesh looks like, Paul says. I want you to know what the product of fallenness is all about and why you need to be vigilant in your life every second of your life to make sure you're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, why you can't let up at all. Now, as I said, the contrast here is between works and fruit. The the word acts here in verse 19 in the NIV is not all that helpful. The word is actually works. And we we know that, that works have a certain connotation. Theologically, we've learned that. Works are what we we understand them to be some sort of personal effort. And we all know that, that in God's work, in God's world, in, in what God wants to do in our lives, that, that works are not where it's at. Personal effort. But here's where I think is the dividing line between those people who really grasp what it is to, to understand the distinction in their lives between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works connote effort. And, and, and the, us expending our own strength, self-effort. When we put forth our own effort, our own work, there are always expectations to that. You know, I did this work, and therefore I should get this in response, or I should get this as reward. There's always an expectation that goes along with it. I'm owed something. That's why in the, in, the, in the arena of salvation, we know that the Word of God says we are not saved by works, we are rather saved by grace that no man may boast, that no woman may think that she's owed something. But we embrace that for salvation, but somehow when we come to growing in the Lord, we jettison all of that thinking, and we say, well, I'm just going to grow myself by my grit, by my determination, by my self-effort. And look at me, God. Look at all the effort I'm putting into this. I come to church every Sunday. I teach a Sunday school class. I drive people back and forth to the hospital when they need help. I drive people to church. I'm here all the time when the church is open. Look at me. Look at all the effort I've done. Lord, there are certain expectations I have because of all this effort. And and, and you owe me. And, And we take a look at our life and we think, 
man, I've been, I've been going to church all the time, teaching Sunday school. I've been giving all my money to the poor. I, I, I'm driving people around. I'm doing so many good things. I've got all kinds of compassion oozing out of my life. Uh, my life should be better than this. My expectations of what God owed me were a whole lot more than this. I don't have a job that I like. I, I'm having tension and struggles in my marriage. I, 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 I don't like the people around me. I'm frustrated by the fact that I don't have enough money. What, my health is down. I mean, God, you owed me better than this. And we become disappointed with God. And when we become disappointed with God, we determine in our hearts, well, I put all this effort in. There's certain expectations that God owed me. He hasn't really made life the way I was hoping it would be. You know what? I'm going to take charge of my own life. And I'm going to start to try and get what I think I deserve myself. The flip side to all of this, of course, is not by effort, but by God's grace. Not expectations of what I'm owed, but to realize that I don't deserve what God has granted to me, but he's given me promises. And this list, I believe, as I've really thought through this section, is in response to people who have poured effort into their work for God, have expectations, and are disappointed with God and people, and so this is how they're now going to live. And so I want to take a few moments this morning to actually define these symptoms of disappointment with God, effort, expectations, and what it looks like when you start to live like this. Actions and effects of rejecting God's dominion over your life because God hasn't really, in your mind, proven to be all that reliable. And the results of thinking like this and living like this is eternal hell. And so topping the list as he begins, sexual immorality. Now sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of God's marriage design. When Bill Clinton said he didn't have sex with Monica Lewinsky... He was using his own definition of sex, not God's. And by the way, it's first on the list. Do you notice that? Because it especially grieves the Holy Spirit. Because the lives of believers are supposed to be the temple of the living God. We're supposed to bring honor to our God by our bodies in our lives. And sexual immorality, although it's often called love, is the antithesis to love, as it's defined in the Bible. Even the pagans, the ancient pagans, as they were encountering Christianity, made note that, that chastity was considered distinctly Christian. Now the word here is porneia, which is pornography, the word in English that we translate into pornography. And let me help to define this and make it very... Abundantly clear of what this really is. Because there are all kinds of 
of, of definitions, particularly within the Christian community, the so-called Christian community of what this sexual immorality is. And we produce our own definitions so we can excuse our own behavior. This word that is granted to us here and the meaning of it is anything of a sexual nature with any part of your body by people unmarried to one another in the biblical boundaries or sense of marriage. Which means pre or post or extra or same gender, married or unmarried, common law, all sexual immorality. And when sexual immorality is found among the people of God, it leads to this next heading called impurity. Impurity is an unclean state, usually through sexual misconduct, making you unfit to participate in the worship of God. It... it, It puts us in a position where we are actually separated from God, disconnected from God. We are impure. God is pure and righteous and holy. And we put ourselves in a position where we are unable to approach God. In that state of affairs in our lives, he doesn't hear us. He doesn't help us. He doesn't heal us. He doesn't bless us. That's why uh, John, the, the, the gospel writer, urged the people of God, if you confess your sins, Christ is willing to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from what? All unrighteousness or all uncleanness. This is the cleansing that we're talking about, to be clean before God. Impurity and sexual immorality lead, of course, to debauchery. A love of sin ultimately becomes so reckless that it ceases to care what God or man thinks, as one writer states it. It is the result of separation from God where he continues to give God or people over to their, to the, to their own depravity, uh, removing restraint in their lives. This place is... This is the place you will get to when you do nothing about the impurities of your lives. In fact, in the Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, the prophet said uh, of the people of God at that moment uh, in, in terms of their impurity and cleanness, said they don't even know how to blush. It's a readiness for any kind of pleasure, knowing no restraint. You know, when you start to embark upon that kind of a journey, it changes the whole demeanor of what you think about your life and your whole, the whole kingdom around your life. It, it, it changes you. It, 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 it gives you the impression that you are the owner and the master and the Lord of your own life and you can do whatever you please. Which places you in a, a position of, uh, of what we would call idolatry. You, you deify yourself. You, you put yourself above God and determine, well, this is best for me. This is how I want to live. This, I, I like this. I like the way this feels. And the Bible says that, that you'll have no other gods before, before me, God says. And, and, and you're elevating yourself to a, a place of, of ownership of your life. There is this sense in the world outside of us, the unredeemed world outside of us, that that say, you know, um, why don't you just follow your heart? That's the worst advice that anyone could ever give to anyone. Follow your heart. 
We're supposed to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. We can't trust our heart. Follow your heart is idolatry. And when that takes over your life, you start to give yourself permission for all kinds of horrible and wicked choices. The next word here in our list is witchcraft, which I've put the uh, original word up so you could see it with your own eyes. It's really pharmakia. In classical Greek, this was the word for drugs. And in the New Testament, by the way, uh, it, was new, it was drugs that were connected with occultist practices. That's why it's translated as witchcraft. It's anything, any drug-related uh, uh, activity that is for wicked purposes. The Bible has nothing good to say about hallucinogenic drugs or, or those mind-altering drugs that take you away from, from the, the, the truth and the reality of God. In fact, you'll probably be shocked to know that, that this word is also used and was also used at the time of the writing of the New Testament for, for uh, abortifacient drugs. They were using drugs to abort babies. The wickedness of that. Now, you think about it in terms of what we've been talking about over these last number of weeks about the great realities of God, uh, the great commandment of God to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you, you square abortion with loving your neighbor as yourself. Nothing could be more antithetical to loving your neighbor as yourself than abortion. Think about that life. If you were loving it as yourself, would you... Cast it aside? Put it in a garbage bin? And then we have hatred. Hatred's an attitude of hostility by the sinful mind that tears down community life in complete opposition to love. It comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes, but is really sourced in a wicked, sinful mind toward God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, it says there, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. We seem to excuse hatred here and there, but John wants to make sure we understand as we put the mirror up to our hearts and our souls that hating our brother is actually murder. And he goes on to write that, that we all know that, that no murder is, has eternal life in him. The, wor- the words go on here. Discord, which is a resentment of place and position that leads to constant bickering and arguing and opposing. It's a rivalry that actually leads to quarrels. I argue with you because I resent you and your position, a position that I should have. After all the effort that I put in and the expectations that I have, God, you owe me. And I resent the fact that I don't have that position. And I resent the person that has it. You know, um, I, I want to make a parenthetical thought here for a second. Is Christians so regular, if we're not in denial about our own wickedness, We are big at blame shifting onto Satan. We blame Satan for this list. You know, we're saying, oh, this stuff is coming upon me. People are doing this, doing that. When in fact, we are exercising our own sinful nature. And when we are practicing these things, anything that happens to us is not from Satan. It's because we are eating ourselves alive. Following discord, there's jealousy. Because if I resent your position, 
position that I think I should have. I'm going to be jealous of what you have, and therefore I want what you have. That's what jealousy is about, desiring what is not for you. It's someone else has it. Listen, if God wants me to have something, do we believe this? If God wants you to have something, don't you think you're going to get it? Do you think you're going to get it? Yes? So why would we be jealous of what somebody else has? If God wanted us to have what somebody else had, he would have already given it to us or is intending to give it to us. Jealousy, you know what jealousy does? It actually shakes our fist at God's grace and says, you weren't good enough to me because I wanted more. Your grace has not been sufficient for me. Your grace is not enough for me. Jealousy, of course, moves us to the place of fits of rage, passionate outbursts of anger and hostility that take us in the opposite direction of the Spirit. They are all the result of hatred and discord and jealousy, a buildup of failed expectations. Lord, I'm so angry that I put all of this effort into it, and, and I'm owed this, and I don't get it. And so we lash out at people with fits of rage. Fits of rage, by the way, and anger like that, unrestrained, makes you vulnerable for the evil one. I mean, who of us, if, if there was a knock on our door, we would go to the door, and if we knew Satan was standing on the other side of that door, who of us would unlock the door and open it? Would any of us? We would not. But by our fits of rage, by our, our unrestrained anger, by our bitterness that comes from that, by what we do in pounding on people, we are actually, it says in the Word of God in Ephesians chapter 4, we are giving the devil a foothold into our lives. Then there's selfish ambition. In the ancient Greek, this word was used for canvassing for an office, like a politician. But here it's not used in a good way. Now, I want to say that about it's not used in a good way. This is using good acts of God for personal ladder climbing. This is the ultimate in being dissatisfied with grace. Self-promotion rather than sacrificial service. I'm really, I'm doing stuff, but not really because I love you or care for you. But rather, so I can get ahead in the organization. That's what this is all about, because God has not given me the place where I really want. I'm looking for much higher position than this. Which leads us to dissensions. Dissensions are literally a standing apart from the community and dragging people away from the communal vision. Like Absalom, who stood at the gate of the city and people came in and came out. He was asking them, so how's my dad treating you? Is he taking care of business? Are you getting justice quickly? Because if I were king, you would get just justice swiftly. I'm just saying, have a nice day. Causing people to doubt the plan and purpose of put forth by those who have been granted leadership. Factions come out of this. Choosing a contrary way and then moving from disagreement to dislike. You know, I, it's one thing to disagree with you. But when flesh takes over, I start to dislike you. 
I mean, we can disagree. But when I dislike because we disagree, I'm starting a faction. I'm choosing to, I'm choosing to fracture a fellowship and, and cause a faction, choosing outcomes rather than the royal road of love. Extreme outcomes. Then it says envy. And by the way, the word envy here is, is envyings. It's a plural word. It's plural. It's the envyings. Paul says, and then there's envyings. I mean, he, he's going down this list of the church. He's saying, and there's envyings among you. All kinds of envyings. Euripides, uh, one of the ancient Greek writers, said this about envy. Not a Christian, but it said this about envy. It's the greatest of all men's diseases. Because it's the wickedness of not wanting someone to have what they have. It's not like I'm jealous of what you have. It's just I, I can't stand you so much that I don't want you to have anything. I don't want you to even have what you have. Who of us hasn't flirted with this thought? It's horribly wicked. The Stoics said this is what's called grief over someone else's good. If I can't have it, no one can have it. Since I think I should be getting more and I'm not, I certainly don't want you to. And then there's the category that follows, which is drunkenness, which is numbing the state of mind to the alertness needed to choose right, righteousness by the power of God. You know, you know what drunkenness is? It's choosing, it's blatantly choosing a different control over your life than God. That's what it is. It is saying that God isn't giving me a, a good enough high. God doesn't provide enough comfort for me. God, God's not giving me enough of a refuge in life. After all that I've done, and all that I expected I would have, and all of the disappointments of my life, I think I'll try what's in a glass. Think of being the living God who has given us his one and only son by his grace, being turned aside for a liquid in a bottle. Which he says leads to orgies. The unrestrained revelings of wild parties that bring dishonor to God. Huge acts of disloyalty. Usually the fruit of unrestrained drinking. But note this. Whether passively involved or present and with all that we have for viewing, it is possible not to attend a wild party, but be part of one in your own house, with your own computer, with your own television. And Paul writes, I could go on, he says, and the like. I, I could keep going on, there's much more wickedness. But this is a description of the church. And we wonder why the church is not filled. Why people are not coming to faith in Christ. Why we don't enjoy the healings of God's healing power. 
why our marriages are falling apart and not coming together. Why our children are running away from God, not just walking away from him. Joe McKeever writes this, Too late does he find out the truth of the old adage that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost far more than you ever intended to pay. Now, I want to say something as we close. This teaching is not about the occasional foray into these wicked places. For if that were so, we're all damned. There's not a one of us in here that hasn't been somewhere on this list, maybe even this week. It says very clearly in the text, in the tense, it's a present active participle. Those who are continuing to live like this without repentance are damned to hell. That's the urgency of this. You can say you walked an aisle one day. You can say you went to a Billy Graham crusade. You can say you've done all the memory work, best memory memorizer in the, in the church. Those who continue to live like this are damned to hell. Not because, by the way, we believe in work salvation, because we all know we don't. But simply because working the flesh all the time in my life shows that the transforming gift of faith is not present. Because those who are justified by faith and receive the Holy Spirit break free from the works of the flesh and cannot rest until they do. So as we close and as the musicians come to uh, come up to the front, God so impressed on my heart just this morning as I was praying through this that we need a holy cleansing. We need a holy cleansing at Calvary Baptist Church. And um, you can go ahead, Sharon. And I, I'm just believing that, that on the, um, at the dawn of a salvation season, this is a time to get serious as we hold up a mirror to our own hearts about sin. And I, I think there are people here, and God did a tremendous work in the first service. I think there are people here who are frustrated, desperately frustrated by the very things we've been talking about this morning, who, who have been really, res- they're really resonating with, yeah, I get, the, I know that effort thing, that expectation, that disappointment with God and disappointment with people. I've been living on that side, and I, I ne- never really got it before, but but I, I, I haven't plugged into the reality of what God wants from me by His grace and offers me promises, not expectations that I'm owed. And in those promises offers me His amazing, joyous grace that liberates my life and allows me to live with cleansing and freshness before God. And sin has been grabbing hold of me. And I want release today. I, 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 am, I am tired of, of this 
works of resentment in my life toward people. And I've been believing that I deserve better and missing the grace of God. So, um, Pastor Steve and the team are going to lead us in a closing song together. And, and if some of this has become a settled pattern in your life and, and God is powerfully moving over you and you want a fresh downpour of the Holy Spirit today, as we stand to sing, I'm going to ask you to come forward here and then we're going to make this a front, a place of prayer. Oh God, help us. A place of repentance, of getting right with God of moving from acts and works of the flesh, moving to fruit of the Spirit, trusting in the grace of God. Would you stand with me? Father, I'm praying this morning that you would do a powerful work in our lives. Lord, root out everything today. Root out our duplicity. Root out our deceptiveness. Root out our disappointment with you, Lord. Root root out the, the way we're lashing out at one another. Lord, root out our denial. And give us a fresh downpouring of the Holy Spirit. Wash us and we will be whiter than snow. Lord, freshen up our hearts, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now you come. You come if God is moving in your heart.